it's like. When I first moved to Albuquerque here, I remember somebody giving me directions, and they said, go up to a street called Juan Tabot. Now, I'd never seen that name before. So I'm looking for something spelled W-A-N. I thought it was all one word because he said it so fast, Juan Tabot. So I looked for this W-A-N-T-I-B-O or something. I couldn't find it. And finally, somebody said, well, there's two words. That's Juan. That's, I guess, Tabot. I thought it was Tabo. But I walked around, or actually I drove around for about an hour trying to find a place. And because I was misunderstanding the message, I never found the place until quite some time later. I lost my bearings. I was handed this story by one of the staff from the Navigator some time back about an English lady visiting Switzerland. And she wanted to move there. And she went to the schoolmaster of the school she wanted to attend and asked if the schoolmaster could recommend a room for her to rent. And so she looked at several rooms and finally decided on one, went back to England to get all of her possessions and moved back to Switzerland. But it dawned on her that while she was there looking at the apartment, the room that she was going to rent, that she did not see a WC. Those of you who have gone to England know that a WC is a water closet or a restroom. And so she wrote back and said, I haven't found a WC while I was there. Could you please tell me where that's at? Well, uh, the schoolmaster didn't understand English very well, and uh, so he asked the parish priest, what is WC? They both couldn't figure it out, and they supposed that what she was talking about, the only thing on their campus called the WC was the West Side or the Wayside Chapel. The Wayside Chapel. And so the schoolmaster wrote the letter back to the English lady, Dear Madam, I take great pleasure in informing you that the WC is situated nine miles from the house in the center of a beautiful grove of pine trees surrounded by lovely grounds. It is capable of holding 229 people, and it is open on Sundays and Thursdays only. As, as there are a great number of people expected during the summer months, I suggest that you come early, although usually there's plenty of standing room. <laughs> this is an unfortunate situation, especially if you are in the habit of attending regularly. It may be of some interest to you to know that my daughter was married in the WC, and it was there that she met her husband. I can remember the rush that there was for seats. There were ten people to every seat, usually occupied by one. It was wonderful to see the expressions on their faces. You will be glad to hear that a good number of people bring their lunch and make a day of it. <laughs> While those who can afford to go by car arrive just on time. I would especially recommend your ladyship to go on Thursdays when there is a piano accompaniment. <laughs> the acoustics are excellent. The newest addition is a bell donated by a wealthy resident of the district. It rings every time a person enters. A bazaar is to be held to provide for plush seats for all since the people feel it's long needed. My wife, being a rather delicate woman, uh, she cannot attend regularly. It's almost a year since she went there last, and naturally it pains her very much not to be able to go more often. I shall be delighted to reserve the best seat for you, where you shall be seen by all. Now, for the children, there's a special day and the time so that they do not disturb the elders hoping to be of some service to you, signed the schoolmaster. Well, you can see how confused this poor lady was when she got this letter from the schoolmaster, who innocently thought it was the 
Wayside Chapel. Not only are directions needed for travel and for situations like this one, but directions are needed for life because there's a lot of people who have no idea where they're going. You know, if you were to ask somebody, what are the rules of life? You'd get all sorts of classic responses, one of them probably being the Ten Commandments. They'd say, oh yeah, I live by the Ten Commandments. Then follow that up with the second question. What are they? See, a lot of people believe in them, respect them, revere them, but don't remember them. There's an article that comes to us from the Boston Globe newspaper about a teacher, a professor who teaches at Boston College, who took his class through the Ten Commandments. He wanted to write them on the board just for a frame of reference for them so that they could uh, learn that in their studies. And he said, it wasn't that individuals couldn't think of them, but the entire class working together to come up with a completed list just couldn't do it. Now this morning, as we're doing an introduction to what we're going to cover in the next about 10 or 11 weeks, one commandment a week, I want to ask four questions about the Ten Commandments. First of all, it's a question of plan. Why are we doing a series on the Ten Commandments? And actually, there's several reasons. The first and obvious being is that it's a part of the Bible. It's a part of the Scripture. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for rebuke, reproof, correction, and righteousness that the man of God may be thoroughly furnished, equipped for every good work. This is part of the Bible as much as John 3.16 is. And so because it's a part of the Bible, we want to study it. You say, yeah, but that's the Old Testament. We live in the New Testament. But Paul the Apostle said, whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that we through the patience and the comfort of the Scripture might have hope. So it's in the Bible. We want to cover it. What if you were to go to a university and they said, yes, we'll give you a college education, but we don't believe in teaching math and English. say, well... Great! I hate those subjects anyway. But it wouldn't be a balanced education unless you got some of those subjects that perhaps, just perhaps, you really don't want to cover, but they are necessary. Second reason that I'm doing this series is because the Ten Commandments form part of the foundation of our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, we are Christians, and Christianity is built upon a foundation of Judaism. And part of the foundation of Judaism is the Ten Commandments, so it's part of our roots. Jesus himself said, Think not that I have come to destroy the law. I haven't come to destroy, but what? Fulfill the law. So if Jesus came to fulfill the law, we ought to be interested in exactly what it is he came to fulfill, since it's part of our foundations. Paul told the Roman church that we are a wild olive branch that has been grafted in among them, the Jews, we partake of the root and the fatness, and so we should not boast against the olive tree, that is, the Jewish nation. Jesus was having a conversation with the woman at the Samaritan well. And she started arguing. She's saying, you know, we believe in worshiping here in this mountain, and you Jews say that Jerusalem is the place to worship. Which is it? Jesus said, we know what we worship. For what? Salvation is of the Jews. Salvation is of the Jews. It's part of our roots. Thirdly, I'm doing a series because it's part of the foundation of our society. Not just our faith, but our society. See, the Ten Commandments do not just form a 
cement work for Christianity and Judaism, but actually for almost all societies that are civilized. C.S. Lewis noted in his book, The Abolition of Man, quote, many ancient cultures have a surprising agreement in ethical and moral standards despite the cultural differences. Man has a basic understanding of these standards that God has established for his creation. Somebody noticed that we have 35 million laws to enforce the Ten Commandments. And as you look at the law, it's divided into two sections. The first section in chapter 20, the first several commandments deal with our relationship to God. The second part, or the second tablet of the law, determines our relationship to others. In fact, look at verse 12. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his manservant, nor his maidservant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that is your neighbor's. So there's a human societal part of the law. Honor your father and your mother. That commandment establishes a wall of protection around the home. And then it's followed by some of the others. Human life is to be sacred, therefore we do not kill. Sexual fidelity is demanded. Human rights are protected. See, God is concerned about not just the individuals, but the community. That we live a full and enriched community life. Now, failure to keep these commandments results in consequences for a Christian or a non-believer. If you go against the grain of God's law, you're going to get splinters. God gave them for society. Uh, the fourth reason that we're doing this series on Sunday morning is simply because of the times in which we live. Would you agree that the times in which we live are perhaps the most aimless, directionless, valueless times that we have seen in our history. People don't know where they're going. There's a lack of value. There's a lack of direction. There's a lack of absolutes. You know why? The foundation is eroding. Remember David said, Lord, when the foundation is destroyed, what shall the righteous do? And the foundation is being eroded around the world and in this country, folks. We've departed from the living God. We've pushed God aside. And whenever a society pushes God out of their national life, an erosion rapidly takes place. And that erosion is seen in how we devalue human life. It's seen by one and a half million abortions every year. It's seen by doctors helping others to commit suicide in a glorified kind of a manner, euthanasia. It's seen by all of this emphasis put on a stupid spotted owl somewhere in the Northwest. I say make a pillow out of it. There's people's jobs at stake here. There's people's lives at stake. And people are willing to kill babies and save whales. But when people leave the living God, they leave a platform of morality and they start devaluating human life. That ends in despair. I have a quote by Dr. Albert Zent Georgi, a Nobel laureate winner in medicine and physiology. He was asked, what would you do if you were 20 years old again? Listen to his response. I would share with my classmates 
the rejection of the whole world as it is, all of it. Is there any point to studying and work? Fornication. At least that's something good. What else is there to do? Fornicate and take drugs against this terrible strain of idiots who govern the world. Would you say he's an optimist? That is a despairing statement from someone who has reached the pinnacle in his discipline. I have an article from the Orange County Register in Southern California who interviewed students on three Riverside County high schools. And they asked them this question. What is right? What is wrong? What is good? What is evil? What is sin? What is virtue? The article said, you know, it's important to pay attention to young people's ideas on morality. After all, these beliefs will be the basis for their actions when they're in charge of the world. Well, that's a frightening thought, isn't it? When adults ask students these questions, they might be surprised by the answer. Now, there may be an accidental crossover from the Ten Commandments and the Seven Deadly Sins, but most of these students in the 90s believe in setting their own standards. In fact, one college professor coined an interesting phrase. He said, as I look at the students on campus, there's a moral illiteracy among them. He was talking one day about chastity in his classroom, and a young lady raised up her hand in college and said, what does chastity mean? And so he said in this interview, chastity and abstinence are just words. They seem to have absolutely no meaning or authority. And let's speak about authority for just a minute, shall we? Most people don't like it. We distaste by nature anything that is authoritative. If there's a law or a rule that says, don't do this, our first question is, don't do what? What is it I'm not supposed to do? Because as soon as we find out what it is, we want to do exactly what we're not supposed to do. In the 60s, our slogan was question authority. Do some of you remember that? That was the motto. Question authority. Don't trust anybody over 30 and question authority. Today the motto is rebel flatly against authority. The question that people ask today is not, is this right or wrong? The question is, is this right for me at the moment I decide it's right? It's full-blown existentialism, absolute relativity. We talk a lot about human rights, civil rights. The truth is, every man is doing what is right in his own eyes, like the book of Judges. And I'm concerned about that. And because of the times in which we live, I think it calls to reestablish these Ten Commandments. Finally, the reason that I'm going through this series is because I think there's a crisis in the church of Jesus Christ. I don't know if you'll agree with me, but I believe that the sewage from the world is seeping into the church. We're adopting their value system in many areas. Holiness is now called legalism. Sin is now called a hang-up, a fault, a product of your environment. Go to a psychologist. Everything but the need of repentance. And that scares me. You can go and look in the phone book and find New Age churches that have crystals that they surround themselves with in their worship. It's called crystal churches. There are homosexual churches. There are combination churches where they take the best of Eastern mysticism and combine it with the West. And we're taking Jesus Christ and dragging Him down to the gutter. And even in true evangelical churches, there's this pervasive sense of do whatever you want. Antinomianism. The best way to discover sin is to indulge in it. And don't you dare judge me, brother. 
And I love the church of Jesus Christ. And I love you. And I'm concerned about some of the things that we're adopting. So that's the first question is to plan why we're going through this series. The second question is a question of parameters, which is exactly what is the law? Now in Exodus 19 and 20, we have an introduction, and then 20 is the Ten Commandments. But let's go back and get a little history. The children of Israel had been in Egypt for about 400 years, as predicted by God to Abraham. While they were there, God did incredible things. They grew to be a large group of people. They prospered, but eventually it turned sour. You see, the children of Israel became slaves. And the Egyptians said, we want you Israelites to build our cities, to build our pyramids, to build our towers. And so they worked as slave labor, and they chafed under Egypt for a number of years till they cried out to God. Their spirit was so broken. And when they cried out to God, God listened to them, and God sent a deliverer by the name of Moshe, Moses, to take the children of Israel out of Egypt, through the Red Sea, and into the Promised Land. And so Moses had the distinct privilege and hassle of leading two and a half million people out of Egypt. Talk about a mega church. Large group of people going through the desert. They crossed through the Red Sea, miraculously God opened it up. By the way, people have trouble with that part. There's a lot of people who read the Bible and they say, I I like the documentation, but I don't go for the miracle part. And so they have all sorts of fanciful explanations about the children of Israel going to Mount Sinai, crossing the Red Sea. And one of the explanations is that it's not called the Red Sea, but the Reed Sea, that there's some kind of a Hebrew mispronunciation. The Reed Sea is the Sea of Reeds, very, very shallow, not the Red Sea that you see over there today that has this huge gorge and water flowing through it, but the Reed Sea, a couple feet deep, and... uh, During some parts of the year, the wind blows and abates the water to a certain degree, dries it out, and you could go through an ankle or knee-deep water. And so the children of Israel, two and a half million of them, walked across the Sea of Reeds safely as the wind was blowing and got to the other side. No miracle, really, they say. Well, as I read the rest of the story, it's an even greater miracle because God drowned the entire Egyptian army in two feet of water, that means. Either way, you can't get by a miracle. Nonetheless, it had been three months since these weary travelers had been out in the desert, and they stopped at several checkpoints. The first checkpoint was a place they called Mara, which means bitter because the water was bitter. And so they stopped there, saw the bitter water, and took a great opportunity to complain at God and Moses. Why did you lead us out here to die? Well, God graciously provided sweet water. And they went on to another place called Elim, where again they decided to complain that the food wasn't right. I'm tired of this manna. Every day, manna. There's manna burritos. There's manna omelets. There's manna hot dogs, manna burgers, banana bread. I hate it. And so God gave them flesh to eat, quail. After Elim, they came to Rephidim. And from Rephidim, they came to that large open desert area, the Valley of Sinai, with the mountain right in front of it. At that point, God said, Moses, you and I got to have a little talk. I want you to come up to the mountain and we'll renew a covenant that I will set with the children of Israel. So look at verse 17 for just a moment of Exodus chapter 19. 
And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was completely in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in a fire. Its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked greatly. And when the blast of the trumpet sounded long and became louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him by voice. And the Lord came down upon Mount Sinai on the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. Then in chapter 20, God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. And he gives to him what we call the Ten Commandments or the Decalogue. Now, initially, this is the law. Ten principles. Ten words, literally. But the law has a broader context that I think we ought to be aware of. You see, Moses was given not only ten principles... But there are chapters in the first five books of Moses that are called the law. In fact, the Jews to this day call the law the first five books of Moses. All of it is the law. We call it the Pentateuch or the five writings. So the law can mean the Ten Commandments. It can mean the things that God gave to Moses in the next several chapters. It can mean the first five books of Moses. But you should also know that the Jews, even to this day, consider the entire Old Testament under the general term, the law, or the Tanakh. And so we have the New Testament, but they say we have the law, the Tanakh, the Old Testament, the covenant given to the Jewish people. But then you also might want to keep in mind, just to confuse you a little further, that to many of the Jews, the law meant not only the Ten Commandments, not only the first five books of Moses, not only the Old Testament, but all of the commentaries written by the Jewish fathers about the law. So you have the Babylonian Talmud, you have the Jerusalem Talmud, you have some of the Targums written, all of the comments that the rabbis had concerning the law. It was called the Oral Law. That's the law that Jesus spoke against. So for our general purposes, when we speak of the law, we speak of the law of Moses principally the law of Moses, and the first five books of Moses. But for our benefit, in the next few weeks, we're going to go through just the Ten Commandments. And a couple things to notice. The law was primarily given to one nation for one period of time. Though there are principles that go beyond that and that are spoken about in other sections of Scripture. The law was a covenant given to Israel for a period of time. For a period of time. The period being from Moses to Christ. John the Baptist said, The law came by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. I want you to notice something as you glance over these in chapter 20, if you would, for just a moment. Notice the way they are written. They're not detailed sets of rules and regulations, they are broad principles. They're broad principles. In other words, it's not a set of ready-made, detailed explanations. You know why? Because, and this is where people have really mistaken it when it comes to the law. The commandments were given not simply to deal with your actions, but with your attitudes. And you apply these principles to general areas of your life, and there are other scriptures that set those parameters. But it's to govern not just the action, but the attitude. And the problem with a set of laws, it happened with the Jewish people, 
is that we see them as a bunch of thou shalt, thou shalt not. And if we keep the law outwardly, we feel good and we pat ourselves on the back. So Jesus said, you have heard that it has been said, you shall not murder. It's one of the commandments. But I say to you, if you're angry with your brother without a cause, you're guilty of the judgment. You're in danger of it. I say to you that it has been said that you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, if you look on another woman to lust after her in your heart, you have committed adultery already. You see, Jesus says the purpose of the law was not to govern simply the outward action, but also the inward attitude. Now the next question I want to ask is a question of purpose. A question of purpose. Why was the law given exactly? Why was the law given to Israel? And we have to answer that question to ask the next question. What was the purpose of the law? If you're a note-taker or if you like an outline, there are three R's that you should remember. The law was given to regard, to restrain, and to reveal. To regard, to restrain, and to reveal. Let me explain. First of all, to regard. That is, God is regarding man in His love. The law was given because God loves people. I hope that you remember that because there's a lot of people that are hung up with the Ten Commandments because it says in the negative, thou shalt not, thou shalt not, thou shalt not. And it would sound like God is trying to cramp your style. He's not. He's trying to free you. And the motivation of God was out of love, out of regard. Let me give you an example. This week, as I was at a conference in California, I took a day and I went to visit my folks. As I was winding down the mountain roads... I saw out of the corner of my eye in the rearview mirror a black and white California Highway Patrol. Immediately, my knuckles turned white. I stiffened up. My adrenaline was because all of the memories of my past childhood came up. And I never remember looking upon those caretakers of the law with great positive regard. It was always like, oh, oh, CHP, what did I do? And I had that same reaction. I saw him. Went, now, I wasn't going over the speed limit, but I just thought, it was just a natural response. You know why? Because I had always seen the law negatively. There they are. But as I thought about it, the law is given for a positive reason as well as a negative reason. The positive reason is this. The law, the traffic law, allows me to go places allows me to go places and see things and do things and visit people. So it's not just negative. It also has a positive aspect to it. Now, in my house, we have laws. There are laws that I give to my son. He doesn't like them. He doesn't agree with them. Sometimes he says, you don't love me. Oh, but I put him there because I do love him. For instance, there's a law that on Monday afternoons there's chores to do. And Nathan has his chores now, I give him chores, not because I need the help and I'm really bogged down, man, can you really help me here? I can do it probably faster than having him help me. But I do it for the positive reason of cultivating responsibility in him. I don't want him to grow up lazy. And because I love him, I give him chores to do that he has to keep. There's another law. He can't just get on his bicycle and go down the street whenever he feels like it. He has to ask permission. When he's given permission... He bicycles to that house, and when he's there, he calls home and says, I've arrived safely. And then we tell him when to come home. I do that because I don't want him to get lost. I don't want him to get hurt. I don't want him to get kidnapped. Then there's another rule 
that is enforced around 8.30 in the evening. And that's bedtime. And pal, there are some times when it's negotiable, but rarely. If you've taken a nap, it's negotiable. If not, it's 8.30 at your bedtime. Now, the reason that law is in place is because I want him to have plenty of sleep, to have plenty of energy, so that tomorrow when he plays at school and his mind will be sharp so that he can listen, he'll be ready. They're not there because I don't love him, but they're there because I do love him. Now, look at chapter 19, verse 5 again. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice, keep my covenant... You shall be a special treasure to me above all the people, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. Turn over to Deuteronomy. Just turn right until you see the word Deuteronomy. Look at chapter 6. Verse 3. Therefore hear, O Israel, and be careful to observe it, that it may be well with you, that you may multiply greatly as the Lord God of your fathers has promised you, a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. These words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. It was principally a covenant of love. God is saying, you're a special treasure. You're going to be my special people. Here's the parameters of my love. But not only God's love to man, but man's love to God. You see, the law provides a tangible means to demonstrate our love to God. It's a good question. We should ask ourselves that. How do we demonstrate love to God? Well, you could say it to Him. You you like to do that? You like to get up and just out loud say, Jesus, I love you. I just want you to know that. I know you know that, but I want to say it. I want to hear me say it. It's good to do that. We sing it to Him. We sing worship songs to Him. We raise our hands to Him. and Those are good ways. But Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And God reiterates that theme throughout the whole Old Testament. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. The commandments of God demonstrate a willing heart when they're obeyed. And it's a tangible means of demonstrating love to God. They were given in the same regard to define our love for others. For the second half of the commandments, as we have seen, deal with our relationship to man. You shall not kill, kill, steal, covet, etc., are given so that we can define our love to man. In fact, the whole law is summed up in love, right? Jesus said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. On this hang all the law and the prophets. You want to sum it up? It's in love. So it's given, number one, to regard man. Number two, to restrain evil. To restrain evil. Listen to how Paul put it to Timothy. He said, knowing this, the law is not made for a righteous person, but for the lawless and insubordinate, for the ungodly and for sinners, for the unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers, murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for fornicators, for sodomites, for kidnappers, for liars, for perjurers. So the law could be seen as a tether to restrain the ragings of the sinful nature. 
Please note, as it's often been pointed out, these are not ten suggestions. Hey, Mo, listen, buddy, you got some time and it's not too inconvenient. You might want to suggest a few things. Now, these are ten commandments that restrain the rages of the sinful nature. Number three, the law was given to reveal. To reveal what? Two things, sin and Christ. Sin and Christ. Paul said, if it had not been for the law, I should not have known sin. The law reveals sin. There was an editor of a local newspaper out in the west here somewhere, small town, and he was putting articles in the newspaper, lining them up for print, and there was one space that he didn't have anything to put in. So he scratched and said, what can I put, what can I put? So he decided that he would just take a copy of the Ten Commandments and fill in that blank space, unedited, no editorial comments whatsoever. Three days later, after it was published, he got a letter from one of the subscribers that said, please cancel my subscription, you're becoming too personal. It's amazing what looking at the law of God can do. It reveals the sinfulness of man. As you go through the commandments, you go, guilty, Mm, I've done that before, done that one a lot. Remember in school when you first learned what a microscope was? One of the first things you did is take a piece of hair or a needle. The needle looks so straight and the hair looks so clean. In fact, maybe you just cleaned it, just conditioned it. You think it's so smooth, you put it under a microscope and it reveals all of the irregularities. The law does that. The law is the lens that God uses and when you gaze at it, it reveals sin. It also reveals Christ. Paul said, the law was given as a schoolmaster to lead us to Christ, for he's the only one that is sinless and has fulfilled the law completely. All right, this brings us to our last and final question, the question of position. What does the law mean to us today as New Testament believers? Now that I know what it is, now that I know why it was written, what does it have to do with me? Because doesn't the Bible say, I'm not under the law but under grace? couple different views here. There are some, believe it or not, who actually say that the Ten Commandments is the sole ground for salvation. And there are others who say, no, we're not under the law, we're under grace. Well, first of all, as most of you know who are believers, you can never be saved by doing good things. The obvious reason is because you can never do things good enough for God. You can never be saved by your good works because no matter how good you are or think you are, and I add that carefully, or think you are, because there's always somebody who knows you a little bit better, right? Who's close to you and would say, he's not perfect, believe me. But no matter how perfect you think you are, it's still never good enough. And when you admit that, you seek forgiveness. And when you seek forgiveness, God gives you his grace. And so Paul says in Romans that we're not under the law. We're not under the system because the system of the law can never justify. It reveals, and it's helpful if you use it right, but it can never totally justify. You see, this problem came up in the early church in Acts chapter 15. A group called Judaizers, legalists, true legalists, came to the early church and they said, look, if you want to be saved, you have to A, believe in Christ, and number two, keep the law of Moses. Peter and Paul and all the other guys stand up and say, wait a minute, why are you trying to put a yoke on these Gentile believers that neither we nor our fathers were ever able to bear? We can't handle this. 
You're not saved by your own good works. Look at it this way. A plumb line for you who are builders. If you sink a plumb line down on a piece of string and you have a weight at the bottom, that plumb line can reveal, can show, can demonstrate that you have a crooked or a straight wall, but it can never correct it. It can only show what is there or not there. Another example. Have you ever taken a glass and gone under a faucet and taken a glass of water and it looks milky and mucky inside? looks dirty and you think, I don't want to drink that. But if you set down that glass of water for a period of time, say even several hours, and come back to it, you notice that it appears clear, perfectly clear, because it's all settled down to the bottom. All the garbage is at the bottom of the glass. And you might think, it's safe to drink now. Something has happened. No, go get a spoon and stir it up. And you'll notice that the spoon reveals the true nature of that glass of water. The law does that. The law comes, and just when you think, hey, I'm good the way I am, starts stirring things up and showing you all the junk inside your life, it reveals. It can never justify. It can simply show. One person put it this way. Run and work, the law commands, but gives me neither feet nor hands. A sweeter sound the gospel brings. It bids me fly, and then it gives me wings. Now, do the Ten Commandments have significance for us today? Oh, you betcha. You betcha. They do. But not to justify, but to demonstrate you have been justified. So, in closing, I want to give you quickly four personal applications that I'd like you to look for in the next ten weeks as we go through the Ten Commandments. Four ways that you can apply the law, the commandments, to your life and ways that I can apply it to my life. Number one, use it as a compass to give you bearing. Use it sort of as a set of guideposts. As we speak about ten major areas in our relationship to God and to man, let those things be guideposts that reveal your condition. See if you're on the right track. Number two, use it as a thermometer to gauge your love for God. Right off the bat, you'll examine in the first few commandments the whole idea of our relating to God. And you'll ask yourself, hey, do I have gods before me? Do I have idols in my life? Is there some master passion that is governing me other than the passion to love and serve and know Him? Jude wrote, keep yourselves in the love of God. Keep yourselves in the love of God. And so we'll be examining as a thermometer, as a gauge to gauge our love for God. Number three, use it as a mirror to reveal yourself. Use it as a mirror. You're going to look in the next few weeks, commandment after commandment, and it's going to show you things about yourself as we pick it apart and as we apply it to our lives. And the Holy Spirit's going to take His little finger and start jabbing around at your heart. It's going to hurt a little bit. Ooh, this message is supposed to be for Him, not for me. But God's going to do that. He's faithful to do that in His Word, isn't He? Confront you with certain things. Use that positively to reveal what is in your life and in your heart. It's also going to show you what's in the world. It's going to reveal a lot. Caution. Don't use the mirror as the soap. Don't you dare think you can skate through the Ten Commandments and say, by these things that I do, I shall be justified. You can't. The mirror is not the soap. Which brings us to the fourth application. Use it as a guardian to bring you to Christ. So use it as a compass, a thermometer, a mirror, and a guardian to lead you to Christ. And I'm saying this for Christians and non-Christians. If you're not a believer, the purpose of the law is to point to you 
your sin and point to Jesus Christ. The law is a schoolmaster to point and to lead us to the cross, but also for Christians. Because as you reveal, as the law reveals these things in your life, it should drive you to the mercy and the forgiveness of Jesus Christ, which will enact change in those very areas. So use it as a guardian to lead you to Christ. By the way, Jesus Christ is the only one who has ever totally, perfectly fulfilled all of the law. And, more than that, He died on the cross to pay for the penalty of our breaking it. So it should drive us to Christ. The blood of Jesus Christ is the soap that cleanses a man from all sin. So God is going to use these things in the next several weeks. He's going to open up. He's going to reveal. He's going to show what things apply to our hearts. Don't see them negatively. Even though there's there's a lot of thou shalt nots, see them positively as God loves you. You're a special people to Him. And God wants to do this to work in our hearts. Let's pray. Lord, once again, we're thankful that You have given us a compass, parameters, gauges that tell us our relationship with You and how it's doing. We understand that the law was given to lead us to Christ. And it is good if a person uses it lawfully. I pray, Father, that we would see Your motivation in it. We'd respond to it positively. As it reveals week after week areas that need work and change, may we see Your loving hand behind the law, giving it, because after the law is the soap to clean us, the blood of Jesus Christ, a lamb without spot and blemish. We owe it all to Him. In Jesus' name, amen.